0: Actually, grab a seat and turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6 is where we're going to be this morning as we have a massive chunk of Scripture that we're going to take on. Massive. Had be remiss on Mother's Day not to acknowledge that uh, Ryan and Lisa Sorensen are here with us this morning. Um, God gave them a precious little baby. Over a week ago, came a little bit early. We've got four kids a little early uh, this time go around, but we are, we are glad that they're back and healthy and that we're getting good reports on little Eli. Um, i grateful for God's providence and his provision for them. Acts chapter 6, verse 8, through chapter 8, verse 3 is where we're going to be this morning in Acts as we continue on our series. What could I say? That would make you so mad that you would drag me out and kill me. Maybe I've already said it. Um, You just didn't have the rest of the group with you. Um, That's what happens here today. For the sake of time, I'm actually going to skip large chunks of our section this morning. I'm going to read in verse 8 through verse 1 of chapter 7. And then I'm going to pick up at, the, at verse 51 of chapter 7 and read through verse, eight, verse 3 of chapter 8. Alright. Hear God's word. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people and some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Syrianians and the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking Excuse me, and gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like that of an angel. In verse 1, and the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, and we'll stop there. Stephen launches here uh, into the longest speech in Acts. And I believe it may be also the longest speech in the entirety of the New Testament other than the Sermon on the Mount. I will not read it for sake of time because I'll reference it and read so many parts of it throughout our sermon as I seek to explain it, but now let's pick up now near the end of chapter 7, at verse 51, where Stephen concludes his speech with a rather um, condemning summary of what he has said. Verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and years, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. "'whom you have now betrayed and murdered, "'you who received the law as delivered by angels "'and did not keep it. "'Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, "'and they ground their teeth at him. "'But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven "'and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing "'at the right hand of God. "'And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened "'and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. "'But they cried out with a loud voice "'and stopped their ears and rushed together at him, Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church of Jerusalem. And they were all scattered, Throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravishing the church, and, and ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This ends the reading of God's word. Praise be the Lord. All right, this text is significant in the flow of Acts. Um, It's a long text, obviously, but it is uh, a critical, it is a junction or a bridge in the book of Acts. You might remember that when you begin the book of Acts, there is a, a great commission or a restatement of the great commission there, in which Jesus, as he is ascending to heaven, tells his apostles that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What we've seen is before this passage, the spread of the gospel and the work of the church for a number of years has centered and has been really only in Jerusalem itself. But after this event, what we will find in the rest of Acts and moving out from this event is a rapid spread and a proliferation of gospel witness that is going to go out to the ends of the world's. It's going to be proliferated. That's what's going to happen to the gospel witness. You remember that word. People of my generation may barely remember it. If you're a little bit older than me, you might be quite familiar with that word. If you lived during the Cold War. We were, the great fear was what? Nuclear proliferation, which means the fear was that it wasn't going to be us and the Russians that had nukes. But then there was going to be, we're all going to create a whole lot of nukes. And then these nukes were going to go into the hands of other people who weren't as sane as us and the Russians. And that still is even the great fear, that someone would get a hold of a nuclear weapon, that they become so numerous that we cannot keep track of all of them. Well, instead of nuclear proliferation, what we have here in Acts, and as a result of this event and leading out from this event, is a proliferation of God's gospel witness that begins to expand and explode to the ends of the world. How is, it that go, how is it that what happens here in Acts, that from this event, that we go from a Jewish-centric, Jerusalem-centric, isolated religion in Jerusalem, to moving into an incredible, with incredible swiftness, a spread of the church to all over the known worlds? What is it about this event? What happens here? Well, the answer is, how does it do that? It does it through Failure they absolute failure. Look, look, look at this. This is possibly Stephen's first sermon, and we know it's his last. And this is a bad day at church for the preacher. In fact, Bernard Shaw, George Bernard Shaw, the great uh, literary writer, thought that Stephen's sermon was an utter failure. He actually looked at this and said, Stephen deserved to die. Look how unkind he is to the crowd. He was asking to be stoned. Stephen made no friends from this sermon, he's a failure. He didn't grow a big church through this failure. And in fact, Stephen's actions here are so bad that it led to a pervasive persecution of the rest of the church. Now, that's a bad sermon. That's a bad day at church. But this, while it looks to us as an absolute and utter failure, as a disaster that blows up in Stephen's face, it's not a failure according to God. It's not a failure according to history, and it's definitely not a a failure according to God's eternal history. And so what I want us to see this morning is that the witness of the gospel is proliferated beyond Jerusalem and to the ends of the earth and to Judea and Samaria because of three things. Because of rejection, because of judgment, and because of death. Rejection, judgment, death. First, rejection. What we have here is a kangaroo court, don't we? Stephen is doing going about his ministerial work. You might remember that Stephen is one of the Men who has been ordained to the ministerial office to care for widows and orphans. He is laboring for the good of the weak. He is known, it says at the beginning, as a man of power and grace. And yet despite this, there are those who incite him into a conversation. And they get very angry. And it says specifically that it's men from the synagogue of the freedmen. Now you may remember last week that those who had the great need and the widows that were complaining about the lack of care were women that were from a Hellenistic background. They were people who were not necessarily from Jerusalem. Now, the synagogue of the freedmen was one of the, essentially, the churches in Jerusalem, and it was primarily people who had been a part of the, the Israelite diaspora, who had been taken to slavery by Rome and by the Babylonians and by the Greeks. The various times these various people dominated the world, and that these people have returned, them and their descendants, to Jerusalem to worship the Lord there. And so what we're talking about here is the very people that Stephen was engaging in to care for. Those who have come back from a Hellenistic background, most likely they were from various parts of northern Africa and very much often would have spoken uh, Greek. They would have been Greek-speaking people. And so what we see here is no good deed is left unpunished. These are the very people to whom Stephen is ministering and dedicating his life and seeking to share the gospel to and care for them in his deeds, and yet they rise up against him and they charge him with a number of things. And what do they charge Stephen with? In verse 11 through 14 are their charges. And for the sake of not reading it again, I'll just outline what they say. The charge against Stephen is this. They say that Stephen speaks against the temple. They refer to it as the holy place. That Stephen says that this Jesus fellow is going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. And that Stephen, they also said the charge is that Stephen speaks against the law, the Mosaic law and the traditions. That would have been the Ten Commandments and all the, the laws that we see in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Numbers and the, also the, the rabbinic traditions that would have been created by the various rabbis over the history of Israel They kind of spliced out what all those laws mean and how you're supposed to apply them to your life. And they also actually begin their charge by saying that not only is Stephen against Moses and against Moses' law, but let's just go all the way and say that G, that Stephen is against God himself. He's against God and so in verse 1, the high priest, they have this kangaroo court, they bring him, they bring together the scribes and the priests and all this mob and this mass of people, and the high priest says to Stephen, what say you? And in other words, Stephen, give us your defense to these charges. And they got, all, they got more than what they bargained for with Stephen. Stephen gives a defense from verses 2 through 53. We have the longest recorded speech in the whole of Acts in which Stephen offends the crowd greatly and is, goes on the offense for his defense. You have heard of the phrase, sometimes the best defense is a good offense. And that's exactly what Stephen does. He says, you charge me as being against the temple and against the law and against God. Well, actually, I'm going to turn the tables on you and show you how you misunderstand and fail to serve the temple. You misunderstand the temple, you reject God's law, and in fact, you don't serve God very well at all. Let's walk through each of those in his, counter, his countersuit against the Israelites. The first is this. He tells them, at first, you misunderstand the temple. You misunderstand God's relationship and his presence with his people. The temple was considered by the contemporary Jews of that day to be the dwelling place of God. Containing his very presence was the Holy of Holies. And therefore, to attack or say anything against the temple was seen as a direct affront to God himself. This is similar in regards to the way, you know how uh, those who are Muslims, if, if you make a cartoon or say anything against their great prophet, that you are speaking against Allah himself. That they are connecting, their, that God and the temple in their minds are so so acutely connected to each other, that to speak against one was to speak against the other. But Stephen counters in his defense that the Jews have misunderstood and God's relationship to the temple. And he defends this by making the point, by moving through Israelite history. And if you were to go back this afternoon, if you had read this before this morning, you'll see that he goes on this long kind of speech about, he reviews Israelite history. And he goes through it to show God's presence at the various times in Israelite history. He begins in verse 2. Stephen says this. He said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham When he was in Jerusalem, when he was at the temple? No, when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. The presence of God, he also says, is at the burning bush, picking up in verse 30. He says, Now when forty years had passed, after Moses had left Egypt, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, and a flame of a fire in a bush. And when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. In other words, not only with Abraham, but now with Moses, he is connecting the fact that long before there was a temple and long before there was a tabernacle, God's presence was with, was with his people. That it didn't require there to be a temple. And in fact, it is holy ground where God is at like a holy of holies. And he reminds them that the temple actually came rather late in Israelite history. It came a thousand years after Abraham. That God's presence has been with them for quite some time. And in fact, he says this in verses 44 through 46. Our fathers had the tent of wilderness in the wilderness. Just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. And so he's not only saying God's presence was with Abraham and God's presence was with Moses, but God's presence was in the desert when it was just a tent, before there was any temple. And in fact, what's interesting here and what is absolutely stunning is in verse 44, where does Moses get the idea for the tabernacle and the temple? It says he sees it in a vision, as Moses had seen it. Which, by the way, what this means is, in Revelation is going to pick this up, that what Moses saw was he saw a greater temple, that the earthly temple was a mere shadow. It was a mere foretaste. It was something small compared to the great temple that is known as heaven, where you actually are perfectly in God's presence. And when Jesus comes, Jesus says, I am the temple, and I am going to temple with you. They misunderstand the temple. They misunderstand God's presence. And instead of understanding that this temple, that God's presence was with for all people, they see it as Jewish-centric, that this is just for us. This is just for us and our people. But what they fail to understand is God is present in the whole earth. God is present for all tongues and tribes and people. So that's the first thing that they misunderstand. They misunderstand God's presence and they misunderstand the temple, but it gets worse. Stephen then countersuits and says this as well. He said, you failed to keep the law. He turns in verses 38 through 53, I won't read it all, but he goes and outlines the various ways in which they haven't kept God's law. He says, you guys are communicating, saying, I'm not a lawkeeper and that I speak against the law of Moses. Well, he ends his argument in verse 53 with this. You received the law, and you didn't keep it, and you have never kept it, and you still don't keep it. Stephen is saying, listen, you're accusing me of not keeping the law of Moses, and you're saying, I have a problem with the law. I don't have a problem with the law of Moses. We all have a problem with the law of Moses because none of us can keep the law perfectly. The problem is, is we've never obeyed it. You may not outwardly, orally, professionally, confessionally deny God's law, but you deny it in your life. And from the very, he goes back and illustrates this with the story of Moses. At the very time that Moses is getting the Ten Commandments and getting the law of God, what are the rest of the Israelites doing? They're creating a calf that violates the very law that God is giving them. And as soon as they get over and over and over again, they violate God's law. And so he answers them, listen, listen, no, you don't need a temple to be near God's presence. But yes, you do have to keep God's law. We have a problem here. God's presence is all, in all places. But in order to meet with God and to be with God, we have to keep his law. And that's not just a problem for me. That's a problem for all of us. The third way in which he countersuits is this. Is that they have rejected God by rejecting all those who God has sent. They reject all God's redeemers. They have a problem. They can't keep the law. And Stephen says, look, I'm looked through our history I'm going to go back through it again. I've noticed a pattern with our people. Every time God sends us a great deliverer, that deliverer is rejected and persecuted by our very people. Let's review, he says. Look at Joseph. God anointed Joseph, appointed Joseph to be a family. He gave him, the head of the family, gave him dreams. And what did Israel, what did the people of Israel, the original people of Israel, the brothers do to Joseph? They beat him up, tore up his clothes, threw him in a well, and then sold him into slavery. That's not a very good reception. And yet, God uses Joseph to save the people. What about Moses? He gives the story of Moses about how God appointed Moses to be the deliverer of his people. And then when Moses begins to take up this call from God, and he's trying to stop two Israelites from killing each other, they say, who are you? You're not the boss of us. And they out him to the Egyptians so much so that that, uh, Moses has to flee to the desert for the next 40 years. Here it is, the one who God has raised up to say, you're going to be the one who's going to lead my people out of slavery. And what does Israel do? We reject you. And in fact, all throughout the time in which Moses is going to Pharaoh and trying to challenge Pharaoh to lead the people out, what is Israel doing? They're complaining at him. And then he leads them through the Red Sea. They lead them out into the desert. And what do they do to Moses? They complain against him. They reject God's redeemers, God's saviors. Later on, a great king comes who's known as David the great true king of Israel, to lead the people. And yet for large parts of his life, where is David? (laughs) He's running around in caves. Why? Because the king of Israel is trying to kill him. And then he becomes king, and it's all hunky-dory for a good part of the time. And then what happens? His own son rises up and creates an insurrection that much of Israel follows to get rid of David. To reject those who God has risen up. And he actually ends it in verse 52 by saying, in fact, I haven't sent a single prophet, a single redeemer, a single great judge who you have not rejected. This is not a good track of history and with the way in which they have embraced those who God has sent to redeem them. And this leads to Stephen's closing argument, which I read earlier, in verses 51 through 53. He has talked about the temple. He has talked about the law and the problem of the law and how we are all worthy of being condemned by it. And he's talked about how God, they've rejected God's pattern of saving them and sending redeemers for them. And now he brings it all together into one final statement. Verse 51 through 53, let's read it again. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the, fathers did your fa- Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. He's talking about John the Baptist. They beheaded him, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. The righteous one, they have betrayed and murdered. You who have received the law as delivered by angels, and yet you did not keep it. Verse 51 and 53 give them the problem in very short. There are stiff necked people with uncircumcised hearts. What does that mean? It means, listen, they have all kinds of religiosity. They have the temple and they wash their hands a hundred times before they go into the temple and they have all these outward expressions of righteousness. But inside, their hearts are rotten and uncircumcised. They're unchanged. They are hard. And therefore, they are unable to keep God's law. And it doesn't matter how often they wash their hands and wear um, ceremonial robes before they enter into the Holy of Holies, they are condemned by God as being unclean. This is a problem. And God says, I have a solution for you. I have a righteous one. You are unrighteous. You have not kept my law. But I have a righteous one who I will send. But what's the problem? What have they done with the righteous one? You killed him. You murdered him. You rejected him. No wonder they stoned Stephen. This is a turning where he is saying, you point the finger at me, I'm going to point the finger right back at you. This is what we call a covenant lawsuit. You know, all the prophets of the Old Testament, they're lawyers. You know what they're doing? They're looking back at the God's law, the law of Moses, and they're coming to the people of Israel and saying, listen, this is the Constitution, and this is the way you're living, and you ain't, you ain't living up. And Stephen's doing the same thing. He's saying, listen, here's the way God's working, and here's the way God's redeeming, and you're rejecting everything the Lord is giving you. What's going on here is Stephen's saying, I'm all for the law. We have to obey the law. We have to fulfill the law. The law is important. But we can't do it. We need a righteous one. And this is what the gospel is all about. It is not. We can't simply talk about the fact that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Jesus lived on the earth. Why? To live a perfect life for us. To live the righteous life that you and I could not live. He It says he didn't abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. To perfectly keep the law in a way that you and I couldn't. And therefore, because of that, he was actually, he could make us righteous. He went before the Father, and he said, I am righteous, and I have paid for their sins. Only a righteous one could do that. He earned the blessing of eternal life, and yet what did he receive? The wrath that you and I deserve. He was denied, he was suffered, and he died. Why? So that we who could not keep the law might be declared righteous in God's sight. And Stephen points and says, "Oh my goodness, what have we done? What have we done? We have murdered God's redeemer, you stiff-necked people." <laughs> and he says, "You're just like your daddy, moms. You said that to your boy sometime, haven't you?" And in a, a moment of a weak moment, oh, you're just like your dad. The apple don't far from the, fall far from the apple tree. Now let me connect this to the main point because this has gone long, really long. But this is. 52 verses, so give me a break. How do the people respond to this speech? What do they do? It says not only do they stone Stephen, but they're so angry they're like, that's it, we've had it with this church thing. We've had it with these people. And they raise up and begin to persecute Christians so that the Christians have to flee Jerusalem and they're scattered to Judea and Samaria and other parts of the world. Now, let me connect this to our main point this morning. How is it that the gospel becomes proliferated Because in Jerusalem, the gospel and Jesus and his prophets and his people were rejected. Because the Jewish nation, the Israelite people say, you know what, we're done. And by the way, there are many Jews who came to know Jesus. This is not an anti-Semitic thing. It says the spread of the gospel comes how? Through Israelite rejection of the gospel. In fact, Paul picks this up in Romans 11, verse 11. He says this, So I ask if the Israelites stumble in order that they might fall, by no means, this is the point. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now listen, I don't understand why God has ordained this in history, but it's clear in the New Testament that he has said, because my people, the people I have come to, jesus you know, I was a Jewish man, I died, I was their Messiah, and yet they have rejected me as a people, and therefore my gospel will go out to the ends of the earth. How does the gospel get proliferated? Through rejection? rejection, by being pushed out so the people of God are scattered. In God's providence, he uses it. And this is how it's been throughout church history. Where there is persecution, Christians leave. And they go to other places where the gospel has not gone yet. So how? How does the word of God and the witness of God get proliferated? First, through rejection. Second, though, through judgment. Through judgment. Verse 54 through 57 Read along in your Bible as I read this. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him, at Stephen. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, and they stopped their ears, and they rushed together at him. And then they cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. What's the judgment of this crowd? What's the judgment of the religious leaders? What's the judgment of the people of earth? What is their verdict towards Stephen? What do they say? You are guilty in the crime. The punishment for the crime is death. Death to you. We hate you so much. We are going to wipe you from this earth. The verdict of the crowd is guilty. And this is how it is. The, the world will deem, Jesus said, this is how it's going to be. The world will deem you guilty, unworthy, worthy of judgment, and worthy of death. Charles Spurgeon said this, God had a son that had no fault, but he never had a son that was not found fault with, because even they found fault with the perfect son, Jesus. God himself was slandered in paradise by Satan. Let us not expect, therefore, to escape from the venomous tongue. Jesus said, if you follow me, you will be persecuted, and that's exactly what The judgment that Stephen got, that the church got, and that we get. We should not be surprised by this verdict of the world. And the horror of this event, it's quite stunning, isn't it? If you actually think about what happens here, they hear from Stephen, and with screaming voices, a mob picks him up and beats him to death with stones. This is a horrific, bloody, disgusting, violent, screaming mob But in the midst of the terror, in the midst of this violent voice, what does Stephen see? Verse 55, but he, full of the Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. What in the world is happening here? Well, here's the truth of what's happening is Stephen is being judged in two places. He's not just in one courtroom. He's in two. He is being judged on earth, and he is being judged in heaven. He's been judged in the lower court of earth, but there is a higher court that speaks as well. And in the courtroom of man on earth, he is clearly condemned, isn't he? He is judged, and the verdict is guilty, but there is one, and what does it say? There is one standing in heaven. Now, what in the world does that mean? It says that Jesus went to sit on the throne. Why is he standing? Because when you stand in a courtroom scenario, you are the lawyer representing the person who you're defending. What we have here is Jesus playing the advocate before God the Judge and God the Father. And this is exactly what we're promised. Jesus is fulfilling the very thing he said he would do. Matthew 10, verse 32, Whoever acknowledges me before men, which Stephen has just done, I will also acknowledge where? Before my Father in heaven. First John 2, 1 John 2.1 says this, we have an advocate with the Father, and Hebrews 7 goes into great detail to say that we have a Jesus Christ who ever lives to intercede for us. What is Jesus doing for us? He is in heaven saying, I am defending him. My blood has paid for him. He is righteous. So now, Father, now, Judge, you declare him as not guilty. Declare him as righteous. Jesus takes the position of a public defender and a witness before the Father's throne. And so while Stephen may be condemned on earth in heaven and the greater heavenly trial at the higher court, at the supreme court of all the earth, Jesus Christ is there pleading his case. You may have a good lawyer. You ain't got a good lawyer like this. And here's how this connects to the fact of the proliferation of the gospel. Because it's this, when you believe in Jesus Christ, when you're in him, when your sins, when you understand that he has put his righteousness upon you, when in the courtroom of God, when God looks at you and he sees all the righteous activities of Jesus and he declares you as not guilty, but instead as righteous and as a son or daughter, in that moment, that's how you get the power to say, though the world call me guilty, I will proclaim the truth. When the world says you're unworthy, you are culturally not savvy, would you get with it? You are not worthy to live in this place. We hate your guts. That that world, when it condemns you, as guilty in that way. The only way you're going to stand up to that, the only way you're going to have the guts to preach with the boldness that Stephen preached in the face of death, is if you know that there is an advocate in heaven who is ensuring the fact that you are declared righteous and not guilty. John Bunyan said this, after he spent 12 years in jail because of his faithful preaching of the truth, he said this, On the day of judgment, that we will get a smile and a kind look from Christ, and it shall be worth more than 10,000 worlds. You hear the voice of the advocate who declares you not guilty, who declares you righteous. There is another courtroom that speaks higher than your friends at work and your friends at school. I know this is cliche. We're not supposed to care about what people think of us. But we do, right? We do. And, and it hurts. And, and the, only, the only way, the only way you're going to get over what is real hurt, what is real judgment, what is real condemnation by your mom today. Because you don't live up. Because you didn't get the gift that you were supposed to get. The only way you're going to live up to the condemnation of the world is if you have a voice that you're constantly running to that says, "You are. You are righteous, you are free. you are beautiful in my sight." So how does the gospel get proliferated? It's through judgment, the judgment of a father who calls us sons and daughters, the judgment of a savior who makes us righteous. Third, the third way in which the gospel is proliferated through failure. Is by death. It's through death. Verse 57 through 59, verse 60. But they cried out with a loud voice, and what did they do? They rush him, they stone him, they kill him. And what does Stephen do? And as they were stoning him, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Stephen is murdered. He's the first martyr, he's the first witness who is put to death. His life and ministry end in death. But just as we have seen with rejection and judgment, the death of Stephen is used as a means to be the means of gospel proliferation, and in fact, it is the means of victory and of changing the world. You see, when you hear Stephen in the midst of his death, say, "Lord, receive my spirits," and crying out with a loud voice for all to hear, "Lord, do not hold this sin against them," what is that an allusion to? Luke's not a dummy. Remember, he wrote a gospel. He's already written to Theophilus. In Luke chapter 23, verses 33 and 34, we see this at the cross of Jesus Christ. And when they came to the place called the Skull, they were there, they crucified him, the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said what? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And then in verse 46 of Luke chapter 23, Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Everything about Luke's description of Stephen's death harkens back is an allusion to the cross of Jesus Christ. They both are brought before a kangaroo court where everybody knows they're not guilty. And yet a cry, a crowd cries out, Guilty, put him to death. What is it we see this... Garments are mentioned multiple times in this text. Who cares about garments? Unless I mean, you're Luke, who's written about the fact that they cast garments for G- lots for Jesus' garments. And he specifically says, we see here, that Stephen repeats the very things that Jesus says on the cross. Stephen's death is a living drama of the gospel. It's a living drama. It's a parable of the gospel and the death of Jesus Christ. And what is the result of Stephen's death? Where would Luke have gotten this speech? What do you think Luke got? It says there in the very beginning of the book of Luke, he wrote down everything that he could remember. He got it from various faithful witnesses. Where did he get the speech? Well, he got it from a young man for whom he spent a lot of time. And his man, that man uh, was mentioned in this text. His name was Saul. And Saul became Paul. And Luke and Paul ran around you know, Asia Minor for a good couple of years together. They were in prison and they were on ships. They had a lot of time to talk. Who do you think Luke's eyewitness was for this event? the man named, formerly known as Saul. You see, the most incredible source for this speech, the most credible witness is Paul, and this event changes Paul. Now listen, I'm not on the spot, does it? This doesn't change Paul on the spot. It takes a work of, of God later on to invade his life. But Paul remembers this in rather sharp detail, don't you think? This is the longest speech in Acts. Do you think this event affected Saul, Paul, Yes. And in fact, most, most scholars who look at this and they look at Pauline writing, they would say that Paul got his source for the person who influenced Paul's theology more than anybody else. It wasn't Luke. It wasn't any apostles. It wasn't John. It was Stephen's sermon. That the themes that Paul more draws out than anybody else are the themes that, same themes that Stephen talks about in his speech. What is going on here? This is a baton exchange from one generation of Christianity to the other. This is a living parable of the gospel that says, "I will lay down my life and so I'll remember one who will proclaim the gospel with boldness and who will die on behalf of the gospel." And Paul sees that, and over time, God changes his hearts. because Stephen, Stephen lived out the gospel, he is a dying parable of the cross of Jesus. And, and here's what this means. This is Green's this is great hope, because this has been a lot of sad stuff. Paul, what has happened with Paul? Paul gives us great hope for two reasons. In the face of rejection and judgment and death, God has always been faithful to Israel, and he's faithful here. What God has always done is, despite the fact in all of Israelite history, they have rejected his prophets and rejected his redeemers, and yet God is always raised up in the midst of that a remnant. Who is Paul? What is Paul? He is a Jew. He is an Israelite. And yet God has a faithful remnant in fact, if we were to look back at the theme of, of Stephen's talk, what we see is the same thought. That despite the fact that they have rejected God's saviors, despite the fact that they don't keep God's law, what happens? God is still faithful to redeem. Joseph, they threw him in a pit and they sold him into slavery. They reject him. What happens? Joseph saves his brothers. Moses, he's rejected. What happens? He saves the people of Israel. David becomes a savior. The prophets, and what happens? They reject Jesus, and what happens? He becomes the savior of Israel. See, this gives us great hope, and it's the hope for those of us, all of us in this room, who have rejected God's Redeemer. Who have said, you know what, I, I, listen, I, I got nothing for him. It's hope for the Israelite nation, because if you, I, I quoted Romans 11 earlier. Listen, those who stayed up and say that, like, listen, we, we should be against Jews, because they rejected Jesus. Well, they haven't read Paul. Romans 11 said, God removed himself from Israel for a time in order to make them jealous. And he says, if from cursing Israel, that God brings this kind of blessing, how much more will the blessing be upon the earth when I return to Israel and bring many people of my people to the Lord? This is hope for Israel. This is hope for all of us who have rejected the righteous one, who have said all of our lives, listen, I I want nothing of you. And frankly, you know what this is hope for? This is hope for men and women in this room who have played the religious game and have tried to keep the law, and they've realized, you know what, I can't keep it. Then, in fact, I have been telling the Savior, you know what, I have no need of you because I'm good enough for myself. I can keep the law. For those of you who have been rejecting Jesus in the most religious way, there's hope for you too. Because Paul was more religious. He was better than all the rest of us, and yet God saved him. He invaded his life. And one final application for those of us who believe. God proliferates the gospel How? the irony of rejection, judgment, and death through a cross and through a stoning. Is it not the irony of Jesus' own death, right? That through, the, through death, we sang about the victory of God. How did the victory come? Through death. And what, this, what does this mean for us, brothers and sisters? If you want to be involved in gospel proliferation, then you have to die. This has always been the case. That the gospel is expanded and spread through rejection and judgment and death, you might lose money in business. You might go on a short-term missions trip and get malaria. We had a woman in my church growing up. She took the pills, but somehow, I don't know how, she got malaria. She died from a short-term missions trip. That's not supposed to happen to Americans. Don't you think she could be a little bit ticked off? Like, hey, I went on a short-term missions trip. This isn't how it's supposed to go. You may be harmed physically. Why? You may be socially rejected, all because you have stood and lived for Jesus. Listen, some of you may have a painful, gut-wrenching relationship with the child you have adopted. And they may judge you, and they may reject you. what do you do? You lay down your life again, and again, and again. Why? Because that is the way in which God's kingdom comes, and his salvation goes to the ends of the earth. Final word. Stephen is able to commit his spirit and cry out for forgiveness for his persecutors. Why? Because there's an advocate who stands in heaven for him. The reason why he's able to do that is because there was the one, the very one who became his advocate at one other time, was condemned by the world, and there was no one standing up for him. It's the truth of the cross of Jesus Christ, you remember those things, you will be empowered to be the means of gospel witness in this world. Let's pray. God, we want to be righteous by this world's standards. That's just the truth of it. We want to be light. We want to be wanted. We want to be needed. We want to be people of power. We want to be people of influence. God, we don't want people to say mean things to us and think things mean to us. To speak badly about us behind our back. Um, and so, Lord, if we're going to be a people who um, are engaged in Your great commission, in the advance of Your gospel in this world, you're going to have to convince us that there's somebody who speaks louder. And so, God, my prayer is this: that by Your Holy Spirit, you would you would speak to each one of those, the voice of the Father and the voice of the Son, who speaks before the Father, and saying, Lord. Let this ransom sinner go. And that he'd hold out his bleeding wounds. And we would, be condemned, we, would be, we would be communicated and judged as righteous. The Lord speak to us over and over and over again of that. Convince us of that truth so that that's what we care about more than anything else. To live our life before an audience of one who has just declared us as righteous and worthy and as sons. And that the rest of the world would fade into the background. Jesus, let me pray. Amen.